0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Well, here we are, back inside the Musicians Guild. I'm your host, Steve Choi. That's something I've been forgetting to say in so many episodes, identifying who's doing all the goddamn talking, but anyways, uh, as always, I thank you for being here and I thank you for listening. So, we're back. Well, those of us in America are back in lockdown, or depending on your personal situation, possibly even quarantine. Many of us saw this coming, not because we're smarter or better, but just because it's plain to see with uh, the habits of the general population. And because of that, it's been a time for me to, uh, I should say, exercise extra bits of mindfulness for myself. It's really easy for me to get kind of frustrated and angry at... A lot of idiocy. And for me, frustration and anger at living in a crowded place with a bunch of fools uh, is exactly the kind of board that my anxiety loves to ride. My anxiety will shred uh, frustration and anger at the general population, like Alva did in a pool 35 years ago. So when I feel those emotions rising, I know that I have to be extra careful because there's been so many times in the past where I've kind of let that go unchecked and I've let that consume me. And it's been one of the fastest ways for me to set myself up for a week or two of dealing with my panic disorder. So while I'm working on that, I hope everybody else will be finding their things to settle back into, to pass the time and to promote good mental health and positive vibes, whether it's baking bread, building that 2000 piece jigsaw puzzle, doing TikTok dances, whatever it is. Uh, I think it's all good at feeding into the collective good energy because we all know that The thing most available to us, which is the internet, is largely mostly designed to evoke emotions in us that aren't necessarily healthy for our well-being. One of the ways I'll be doing that is kind of diving further into musical projects, uh, of which I have a few going, but one of the main ones will be having a focus of making music that is solely for my own personal enjoyment. And that may sound kind of weird in that uh, some might assume that my music has always been driven by making what I want to hear. But as odd as it sounds, uh, sometimes that path becomes very... Not clear, I should say. It's littered with a lot of obstacles. Whether it's the voice of self-doubt or worrying about what other people think or worrying about one's own music career. Um, I didn't realize that it happened for so long, but after kind of taking stock and taking a step back, both from being able to tour, but the time that we stepped back from RX, I was able to realize How long I was contributing creative ideas and making music that, although I wanted to hear, wasn't really as close to the core of making music that I enjoy listening to. Uh, It wasn't as close to that as I wanted. I think one of the most important things to do as musicians for ourselves creatively is to kind of forget about how our music is perceived by the outside world and our fans. And it's hard to do that because there's part of you that wants to, I don't know, indulge that and give listeners what they want. And even though that started most of the time uh, uh, on us doing what we naturally do, There's that point that bands get to or songwriters get to where it sounds like they're trying to cover themselves, where they're trying to recapture something. And although I don't feel like anything I'm involved with um, has ever really fallen victim to that, uh, it's actually quite the opposite. I do realize that somewhere along the way, I got caught up more in making music that I think should sound a certain way, then music I myself would enjoy listening to. And it's evident because I have this pattern of once I'm finished working on a record, I don't really want to listen to it for a really long time. Not even for nostalgia. It'll be at least a year or two before I give the record like a proper sit-down, listen front-to-back. Even the last RX record, which was called Gemini, Her Majesty, it was made and released in 2014. I don't think I actually gave that record a full listen until like last year, which would have been like five years after the fact. And uh, I think this new approach for myself is definitely presenting a challenge because it's going to force me to essentially block out Those multiple voices in my head constantly going, uh, the voice of self-doubt, and to kind of shut those things up and to kind of trust myself and find that confidence that I've had such a hard time finding throughout my life. And I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun, and I'm just eager to finally make a collection of songs that I truly, truly do not care what happens with it. I don't care how many people listen. I don't care if people like it. I don't care about all that. And it's easy for me to say this now into a microphone, trying to like make some address and put out some sort of message that has some meaning. Um, It's going to be much harder at those moments when... I'm overanalyzing something. But I'm going to work on it. And I'll get through it. Like we all will. Okay, so today's guest. Today's guest is my very good and old friend, Peter Soros, from Washington, D.C. Peter is a guitarist. He plays in Be Well and Fairweather, among many other bands. Uh, Peter is also... I guess what they call a museum technician. He works in a museum in D.C., which focuses on Byzantine and pre-Columbian art, which for me is very fascinating. Uh, We get into that. We talk about that and how he came up getting into hardcore and punk in D.C. and skateboarding. Uh, Among other things, we also talk about Green Jello, the band. Talk about the rock and roll Ramada in Detroit when Fairweather toured with RX 17 years ago. Um, We get into a lot of stuff. I ask him if he's gotten to see a bunch of my favorite DC bands. We talk about how he got to see Fugazi at the 930 Club. We talk about the Gold Top. Uh, He has a 1979 Gold Top. Uh, which is a guitar, and uh, we specify what exactly that is. One of the most iconic American guitars there is. And yeah, this is just a real comfy, cozy chat that I had with my friend Peter. I think that it definitely helped bring me more relaxing vibes, which I can always use. And I hope it brings you, the listener, many relaxing vibes. And uh, yeah, enough of my babbling. Here is my great conversation with my good friend, Peter Soros.
1: Peter, how are you? Good, man.
0: Doing great. It's great. What are you sipping on right there?
1: I got a Miller High Life right here. This is, is that one of your favorite beverages? It really is. It is. It's been my favorite for a long time. Um, got a couple of them ready to go right here. And uh,
2: yeah. What about you? I'm sipping on some turmeric tea. That's nice. really boring. Nice. Boring old guy shit. Nice. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um so I saw you doing some tracking earlier. Yeah, dude yeah. uh, for the Fairweather record and you were using your gold top, right? Uh uh. Uh-huh. What uh-huh. year is it again? Seventy eight or something? Seventy nine. Seventy nine and seventy nine. The part I heard you tracking was this super awesome uh clean guitar sort of rondo. So mm-hmm. there sounded like there was at least two parts, if not three, going. Yeah. Um, no drums, right? Uh-huh. In that part. All right. So tell me about the rest of your setup for tracking
1: today. What amp were you using? Okay, so we did a couple things today. So Ben has a lot of cool stuff at his studio, right? And right. Um, mainly. What studio what, is this? This is Ben Green Studio from Fairweather. His studio. No, is I mean called, what's the what's it called? Yeah. It's called Ivacoda. Oh, okay. Cool it's called avocode yeah it's in uh, southeast dc uh m- the main stuff that i've used so far on this record are an orange head a 50 watt orange head that he just got and shit the uh he's got a vox combo that we've been doing for those tones and that's what i was playing with on the, what you saw me with is it an and, ac30 uh, combo
2: i think that's what it
1: is cool yeah i don't know ben will probably ben's probably laughing at me because i don't know what it is right now but um it's we no use that i it mean it, it, it we we and we've run them both through uh, a marshall cab too so the combo has a little bit more uh balls to it sort of right um are you a are you running them together we, for your tones No, no, we're kind of just like jumping back and forth all over the place with tones. So if we Mm -hmm. get like a tone we like, we'll kind of uh, run it across the song and see where where it needs to be, that one like main, you know, like a main part. And Uh then uh, there's so many guitars on this that we don't need to blend these tones together because there's like... There, we have three guitar players now. I think I've told you this before. So yeah, uh-huh. that's, that's going to be another odd thing about us recording because it's hard enough to like not overdo your guitars when there's only two of you. So now there's three of us, so we have to really be deliberate and uh, we have to edit pretty well. But it's going well. Awesome. Is that orange mainly
0: used for i mean are you even using any dirtier more distorted tones on any of these
1: songs uh we're using a lot of just the amp distortion and right um, my favorite kind yep there's a couple times when like maybe we need to give it a little bit of more sauce in a certain kind of way so we've been using um you know a little a pedal here and there but not really a lot because i've always kind of felt like it kind of takes away i i, I like to use a an overdrive or a boost or something like that. If I need to like do a part live and have it punch up a little bit more, but um, it's just more stuff going through the line too. And it starts to get a little, the sound starts to get a little weird.
0: Yeah. So that part I saw you tracking earlier, was that literally just guitar to amp or maybe through a tuner, but nothing else? Yeah. Just through a tuner nothing else.
1: Actually, I I think there is, there's a Holy grail reverb pedal on Okay, so it had a Holy Grail on, Holy Grail but... and then just the amp and nothing else. And that's kind of how we've been kind of how we've been operating so far and a lot so that it. what you heard on that was maybe one of the quieter parts on the record. Now the record is very layered and textured. It's like a, we we kind of went deep on building this up with like a million layers. It's very the last album was really straightforward and punk and we wanted to sound like the way that we sound playing live together. And so we went into this one, wanting it to sound as theatrical and as textured and lush as we could. So it's like a, it's a big difference, but it still doesn't sound, it doesn't not sound like us, but you know, it's, we're kind of, we have a lot of room to play with on this one. So sick. Uh, did you have like a full day of tracking? Were you recording all day? Uh, almost. I started about one, one to about six, maybe. No, so that's five not, hours of guitar playing yeah, is solid. Five hours of guitar playing. So we, I, I banged out a whole song today. So that's kind of how totally finished your parts for a whole song. Totally finished my parts for a whole song. That always feels good. It feels great. It feels great. We have. I have one more song to do. Funny thing nice. is, there's there's four songs on this so it seems like short but it's like about 30 minutes of music so it's long and the songs are really involved you know it's not like it was before but we've worked at this record for so long now that you know i'm coming and tracking and i'm not we're not really figuring out what to do you know we're we're pretty deliberate with what we need to do there's some experimenting but it's not you know there's no pressure in that respect yeah. You know. Have you been tracking all of the songs with your gold top? He, mainly, yeah. I've played that um, Ben's new Music Man on like one of the songs because it had a, just a, the kind of tone we wanted for the single string kind of rocking we were doing in that one. Uh-huh. Um, but I played the gold top for most of it. Yeah. It's re, the gold top's a versatile guitar. It's, it always keeps coming back to being the one that, that yeah. gets used on the record.
0: Yeah. And for those who may not know, uh, Goldtop is a Gibson Les Paul. It's yep. a pretty iconic American guitar. I would argue one of the top five, maybe. Is that safe to say? Top five?
2: I got to say probably, yeah,
0: because... Top five? I would say top five, at least. Yeah. Slash, slash made them famous. Um There's a few other people that play Goldtops that I'm forgetting, but I mean... Slash is, has has to be one of the main ones. Right?
1: Slash, slash is one of the main ones that I think that people our age or 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 younger might know. Like, oh, uh, you know what? I believe there was a time where
0: it was either Stone Gossard or Mike McCready and Pearl Jam that played a Gold Top for a while. Yes, the
2: guy with the um, the guy with the short short hair. Yeah, that's Mike McCready. Yeah, he. Okay, one
0: of them played a gold top for a while too, which made uh-huh. sense. I was like, "Oh, homie from Pearl Jam's playing a gold top, American band, American guitar." What I did like the other it, What right? did the other guy play? He played a Strat, right? Uh, well, back in the day, Stone Gossard he played uh, Les Pauls as well. Oh, okay. I'm trying to
1: picture the so the uh the video, for the black and white video, and I can't. Alive, uh, alive, yeah. <laughs> And then right as I was trying to picture that video, I immediately went to my brother driving me to high school one day and playing that song. And he was just like singing it like, like he was in a music video singing it on the way to school. Yeah. I loved that record when I was in junior
0: high, I was 12 or 13 when that came out and it hit me and I rocked the shit
1: out of it. Dude, it's a serious record. Like, you know, with all the, it's not a joke. Yeah. The amount of stuff that was on the radio then that was super silly Right. It's really serious. It's got a bunch of serious shit on there. Yeah, I mean, there was that whole green Jello, uh, <laughs> Three Little Pigs single and claymation video. Yeah, and that got. I mean, how much money do you think those guys made from doing that? Oh, that single was huge, though. Don't you remember how much MTV play it got? It yeah, got that's that's what I'm saying. Hard in in the late '80s or early '90s, if you were on MTV enough for you and I to see this thing all the time you were selling records yeah and that's when you could make money off a
2: record too totally
1: oh green chill
0: (laughs) oh man it's we're not even 10 minutes in and we're already getting into old guy (laughs) shit from
1: the 90s i love it have you uh do you like to read uh rock by autobiographies or biographies about musicians I've read a few, but I can't say that I'm a fan.
0: Like, uh, one of my favorites is here, there and everywhere, which is a book by Jeff Emmerich, who was the Beatles engineer for like a good portion of their career. Uh, Okay. Um, and obviously I've read the, I've read stuff like the
1: dirt and, um, the dirt is kind of a few other, the dirt is kind of more fun to read because it's so ridiculous I think that maybe the pro- problem I have with reading those is like sometimes they're just written badly and they just seem like a, 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 like a, a commercial for the person who wrote it. You know? I mean, that's definitely the dirt. Yeah. Um, but I was just going to say that I think it was Anthony Kiedis's autobiography that I read that was talking about when they brought Pearl Jam and Nirvana to open for them on the Blood Sugar Sex Magic Tour. Wow. Yeah. What a tour. So so I learned in that book that the only reason why they got on that tour, Pearl Jam. So Nirvana had record had come out. So it was like, you know, they're already starting to get bigger. So they, Red Hot Chili Peppers did that thing where you take out the band that's like really hot. And uh, somebody in the Red Hot Chili Peppers crew was from Seattle. Pearl Jam used to be, some of the members in Pearl Jam used to be in a Red Hot Chili Peppers cover band. Oh. This is in the book. And he was like, well, I heard these guys from my hometown that used to be in a Peppers cover band just signed to a major and their record's going to come out soon. So they're like, all right, fine, we'll put them on a tour. And then this, this is like 91. All those records dropped at the same time. Well, never mind. And uh,
2: Ten. it? Pearl?
1: 10, right. So think about by the time that tour started and ended, how big those bands were. And then Blood Sugar Sex Magic was huge.
0: That record was massive. It had so many singles. So many singles. I mean, so many. Even B-sides from Blood... I believe that song Soul to Squeeze for the Coneheads movie soundtrack Uh was like a B-side. I believe that was a B-side from right uh blood sugar sex magic and that video and that single still went big so and big i mean i'm not a huge chili peppers fan i'm I'm one of those guys that's not it i really like musically they're really awesome but the vocals kind of ruin it for me
1: but, but you're, from, you're from you're from california though i thought yeah, all but the, i'm from yeah, northern i'm all from the North songs, Cali, all the songs all the songs are about california you're mm-hmm. supposed to like them
0: yeah, I'm from Northern California. Dude. Yeah, there wasn't nearly as much love. No, I get, but, uh, I get it. I was going to say is um, Flea's bass parts on Soul to Squeeze, that song, are amazing. Some yeah. of the
1: the nicest melodic bass lines in all of that era. And, and also, I guess the singing on that song is less ridiculous too.
0: Yeah, they sound you heavily I mean? produced where somebody was pulling Anthony Kiedis out of his comfort zone and like <laughs> yeah trying to get him to sing longer cleaner
1: notes which he has a hard right. time with you right. know he usually kind of just wants to do the bark rapping so yeah and there's also lyrics on there he he just makes up a lot of gibberish a lot of times he, when i was young i thought they're awesome because they're i i saw them in the movie thrashing that's how i learned about them yeah right and when you're a kid and the songs are like silly and weird it's like awesome i was like 10 or something i don't know whenever thrashing came out yeah so but then like you know you discover other stuff
0: they were they were good in the chase too flea and anthony kiedis
1: oh yeah (laughs) i forgot
2: and anthony kiedis was
1: in point break
2: well of course yeah yeah so yeah there's there's that
0: that's cool man oh man we just went down such a rabbit hole of nostalgia it was only like a matter of minutes before we started getting onto like Pogo balls and Capri Suns <laughs> and stuff like that. We, totally. we were so, we were so close totally. uh, and then we would have naturally gotten into rad and mm. then it, you know, it always starts to like end up in cartoons or cereal, these conversations, you know, we, we've all had them, right? So,
1: oh my gosh, rad, you can, <laughs> we can move forward, but rad's a whole nother thing too you know getting ready to break the
0: ice dude uh the theme song
1: send me an angel yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> um so this is kind of an abrupt okay. uh tron light cycle like topic change mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. directionally speaking but yeah. um I'm just thinking of it now, and I, I want to talk about it a little bit. so sure. Um, sure. Can, you, can you explain to our listeners what your other job is besides musician? Like, what the title is and what it is that
1: you do? Yeah. Um, my title, I work in a museum. Uh, my t- title is a, uh, I think it's a museum technician right now. They change a lot. It's kind of the same job. It kind of depends on which, which institution you're working at. Exhibit specialist, okay. Museum technician. Um, art handler, sort of. But I do more fabrication and construction than just an art handler would do. An art handler, for people who don't know, is somebody who installs artwork. So museums have these people on staff sometimes or sometimes they're contractors. And <clears throat> if you're at an institution that's... A little bit larger you're doing more of exhibit fabrication and construction so you're not only just handling the artwork and installing the artwork you're building the exhibits and uh, maybe packing it for shipping and so it's pretty much soup to nuts you're dealing with anything that touches the art you're you're doing it but you're dealing with more than art you're also dealing with artifacts no yeah but Yes. In this case, it is still considered all art. So, you know. Oh, I guess you're right. We call them objects a lot at a museum like this. If it's not like a painting, uh, you'd call it an object just because How it's kind, you kind of like. How dare you objectify them. <laughs> like the, it's like a widget sort of, you know, it's, if it's like a little piece of jewelry or something. Or, right. Um, um, it, so there's, it's, it, it, I tell some people you just have to say, I have to say I'm a carpenter, which kind of easier to easier to make somebody understand what that means.
0: But literally like where the rubber hits the road, you are building, let's say the custom display platform and case, or if it comes with map or artwork, you're also building the panel for that to be put onto and such.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like the exhibit, the case that the thing is in with the, the plexi top and the chamber okay. for the silica gel to be in there to, to pull the humidity to the right f- level okay, that you want you. it at. You do all those things. Uh, the little mount made out of brass or whatever that the little object is being held on. I'll do that welding to get that together, raising, and, or sometimes I'll make... I putting vinyl letters on the wall or, you know, there's so many little parts to it, but yes, like anything or i ha- like if somebody needs to come and look at a piece of art, I'm the one that has to go and pull it out of storage and hold it for them and show them what to do with it or, you know, and
0: for the cases and little stands and stuff, you're all making that custom mm-hmm. per display, meaning mm-hmm. there's no like set plexiglass box size. You're cutting those pieces and gluing them and putting them in and everything.
1: Yeah. Yes. And no, There. are some of it's custom, like you could go to a website and order like a custom little little mount and then shape it to the way you want, but it's, a lot of times you need to build it from scratch to make it work, right? So yes, you're I building that from scratch. Uh, plexi things, that stuff you normally have to farm out to somebody who specializes in that, the bigger you get because you have to have a shop that's kind of catered towards that with plastic because you're you're kind of welding these plastic seams together with chemicals. You're not, it's not really glue, you know? So you kind of have to have more of a specific shot for that sort of thing. But Cool. Yeah. And so do you do a lot of the work when the museum is closed or while it's open? You're doing it in a different workshop space. Yeah. We're just in a place that's not open to the public. So the only time I'd be like really where the public is, is if I'm, walking through the museum to get somewhere or we're installing an exhibit and like you know you see the the stanchions and the sign that says exhibit under construction or something like that totally Um, so i'll be in like where i work now i have an office in the museum that's got a little tiny workshop in my office but then down the road which is odd a lot of times museums are bigger but my museum's a little quirky down the road is where i have my cabinet shop which is where i do like the bigger work and then we transport it kind of up and down the street what do you like to listen
0: to when you're working at the shop? Are you a podcast or music or mi- a mix of both?
1: Mainly podcasts. Um, I'm kind of obsessed with podcasts to the point where I have to remind myself to listen to music. And if I listen to, <laughs> if I, if I listen to music, I listen to a lot of metal because I can kind of zone out to it. Yeah. Um, What's your then- favorite zone out metal?
2: My sugar. That's a good zone out metal, I feel like.
1: I like more thrashy stuff that every once in a while has a breakdown because I can kind cool. of like just kind of like bob my head to it and then something kind of like surprises me. I don't know. Honestly, the heaviest record that I have been listening to lately is the new Retaliate record. Yeah. It's not, but it's kind of thrash. That's why I bring it up because it's like got some more thrash stuff to it. But, um, I gotta say, more podcasts. It's like, if, really, if we're really getting down to it, I'm. A, I have this backlog of podcasts that I always like. The, the New York Times, the Daily, comes out every day. I listen to that almost every day. I listen to Diane Reem almost every day, who has got a podcast. She used to be on NPR. I follow a lot of crooked media stuff, and so I just have like I have kind of like a Fresh Air. That's like one of my favorite ones too. So. That's a pretty
0: dynamic range and a true display of what a well-rounded human you are because you're listening to our good brothers, Oxnard's Oxnard's Finest, Retaliate, yes, yes. and Roger's sort of maniacal thrash riff mastery, and we kind of evoke that in each other. And then you're also listening to some of arguably the most reputable news and journalist uh, sources that
1: there are. I, well, thank you. I, that, that's a great compliment. Um, because those are great people giving us information that we need. And Roger keeps continuing to give us riffs that we need. (laughs) That's awesome. I know Roger will be stoked when he hears this. That record is awesome. Also for people who don't know, we all kind of met, well, you and Roger, I think, knew each other before, but that's how I got to know you and Roger Camaro from... We
0: didn't become friends until that same tour, though. And what uh,
1: Peter's talking
0: about is when Peter, who is in... Well, one of his bands is called Fairweather, used to be on Equal Vision, and they toured with RX on our Sell You Beautiful tour in 2003, along with No Motive, which Roger played in. They were mm-hmm. a vagrant band at the time, and yeah, we
1: did nine weeks. It's a long tour. US.
0: Such it was like, a long tour. It was like
1: we were all roommates after that. We played every market, like B, C, everywhere. everywhere. It was so fun, though. So fun. I think that was like my, it, my most fun tour. I've, you've done probably a million more tours since then, but like, I look back. We all look back on that one. Everybody in Fairweather is like one of the, the best ones we did. I got
0: to say to, I, sh- I should say like substantiate your feelings or resonate them, although I have done a million tours since then, that still is in my mind as one of the best, most memorable, just because of how hard we worked, how Mm -hmm. hard we played, and just how it really embodied this full summer of youth and reckless abandon. Not to sound too cliche, but it's that type of cliche that I feel fortunate that I got to live in such a vivid Uh, I mean, those experiences and that stuff, it's, uh, I don't mean to sound like hyperbolic, but it's like life changing, you know, it was because when I'm yeah. 23, I'm stupid. I don't know shit. I've had so few life experiences that it, it was hugely, uh, transformative. Yeah.
1: Plus to be on a tour where there wasn't one band or group of people that just kind of like stuck to themselves. Like, I feel like everybody was one big crew on that whole tour. And we broke down so you hard. You don't find that a lot. There's always one band who's just a little more annoyed with everybody else or they're a little bit more like,
2: yeah. they,
1: they stick to themselves. I mean, also, the music was just so different too. Like we, every band sounded different. And, yeah. And that was a time where I think that you could do a tour like that and it was more acceptable to have a package. I mean, there was an opener besides us three, usually. That's so it switched was like, off, yeah. Yeah, it was a four-band bill, but that was an era where you could still have a mixed-up bag of bands before everything got real galvanized. I think that in the mid-2000s, it was like, if you're a straight-edge hardcore band, you play straight-edge hardcore bands. If you are a metal band, you play with metal bands. And, yeah. and that was a time where it was, we all, I think, came from a time where you went to shows where there is a bill with five bands and everyone sounded different. And that's what you, that's how you got exposed to different music. So
0: it was Um, cool to
1: be able to do that. And um,
0: I'm sure I've said this and over the course of however long this podcast goes, I'll say this many more times, but that's the type of touring that's like kind of lost these days. I feel like, yeah. Um, Just because it's not because i'm removed which i am but uh-huh. it's just because i know that the music industry's suffering there's less small venues and and smaller mm-hmm. bands at that level that still have the resources to be able to go out in a van and trailer and tour for 8 weeks at a time you know
1: yeah oh my god i know i the they don't nobody wants to take a chance on anything too like you're saying like the venues yeah. you know any one of We could have. That was the time when Fairweather could have headlined a a U.S. tour, and on our own, you know, playing moderate size venues, and we played big venues on this tour. But I think that now they don't. Nobody wants to take a chance on something might that might not work. They don't. They don't think that other fans are going to come to see a band if they're not like the big, the headlining band. I just, the era just seems to be gone to me. And if it's not a sure thing, it's not doable. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm glad I have that memory. Um, it's memorable just because it was our first, like, bigger headlining tour. It was the first time we went to other places in the country and drew mm-hmm. more than a couple hundred people. It's the, the first sh- time that we started playing, like, bigger shows, you Yeah, know?
1: So. The shows were, every show was great. The worst show was a good show. On that tour. Right. Yeah. It was and, that type of tour. Do you remember one of my fondest memories of that was the rock and roll Ramada in Detroit? Oh yeah. That place. I try to explain this to people that what do we play St. What's it called? St. Stephen's or St. Andrew's in Detroit. St. Andrew's Hall. St. Andrew's. Yeah. St. Stephen's the venue in that used to be in DC. Um, they used to give discounts to touring bands at this Ramada in downtown Detroit, which was in 2003 yeah. was a fucking ghost town, right?
0: And Total ghost
1: town, before they, it was starting to get rebuilt, yeah. Totally, and they had a huge, like a 10-foot chain link fence where you could park your van and trailer. So that was the other selling point. So a 25-story old hotel that used to be an apartment building – when detroit was booming sometime became a ramada by the time we were there there was nothing they they were dying to have anybody in there they had a pool hall remember that like they that are like a, a hotel bar with a pool hall
0: yeah, rooms are 40 dollars
1: floor that everybody yes. broke into the fourth floor that they said was haunted i remember saying to the lady at the front desk i said i heard the fourth floor is haunted and she said don't even try going on that floor It's locked. Don't even do it. And then we did it. And then somehow we ended up on the roof and we sat. Did you go up on the roof with everybody? No. At that point I had ducked out. Okay. I was sleeping. We made our way to the roof and there was definitely like going into some sketchy places. Somebody kicked open a wooden panel holding a door open or something like that. And we ended up sitting on the roof. I remember sitting... It was summertime, so it was beautiful in Detroit in the summertime up, you know, wasn't very humid at all. And I remember sitting on the edge of this building that was like 20 stories tall, we were all drinking 40s, and looking at this abandoned city, just thinking about like what happened to American industry, you know, which is a whole nother thing that you could think of, but like I'm 26, sitting up there going, this is what I'm doing right now with my life, hanging out with these cool people, having time of my life in this weird place. I don't I don't know where else I can go with that. It's just an amazing memory to have. That's a
0: really cool vibe that you just put out though by, you know, living mm-hmm. that nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I think it's legit. Um and it was wild. Yeah. I mean, that was just one of many sort of adventures. That was one of the most adventurous tours as well, just because like you said, we were playing a mix of suburban B markets and A markets and stuff. But um, if I may, yep. I'm going to divert us back to museum talk just because I'm okay, Tron, curious Tron, that's okay. Tron is moving sideways. Tron yeah. back. Yeah, go ahead. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Okay.
1: Um, I like to talk so we a lot, talking, so you got you to gotta keep me on track.
0: No, that's why you're a great guest and I have great mm-hmm. conversations with you, man. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Um, So... We were talking about you working in the workshop, but mm-hmm. what we didn't really specify is what your museum's
1: focus is if it has one. So, yeah, my museum focuses on, it's kind of a strange, smaller museum. Strange in the sense that maybe a lot of listeners might not, that don't go to a lot of museums. Think of the bigger art museums. Um, mine is mainly Byzantine art and pre-Columbian art. Cool. So I love it. So that's kind of like where the hist- history that I think you were talking about kind of comes from with yeah. what we're talking about the artwork.
0: Okay, so Byzantine is Byzantine, but pre-Columbian I mean that spans over Aztec,
1: Mayan and Incas, no? Yeah, so those are the big three, right? You and know, with the yeah, Toltec, all those, all these guys. But you know, I, I think it, it's it's more of a blanket term that, and I'm not a pre-Columbian scholar, but it's essentially anything from paleo paleolithic time up until European right. European arrival, which essentially either squashed out or decimated those, because clearly everything changed once. Columbus landed. So that's right. why it's called so Pre, pre- Columbian. Yeah.
0: Okay, right. Gotcha. Right. So is there an even mix of things between Byzantine and Mayan and Aztec and Incan stuff? Or do yes. you guys rotate what you focus
1: on? There are two permanent galleries that are one is Byzantine and one's Pre Columbian. So they essentially get the same billing. They're co headlining this tour. Right. So So. So there's a a Byzantine gallery and a pre-Columbian gallery, and then we have kind of a um, area that stays more in rotation that we do a temporary exhibit in twice a year. Uh huh. Um, But most of the stuff stays on display most of the time, and there's not real. There's no. There's no. um, There's one of them is not priority over the other.
2: That makes sense so is it just random or does the curator
0: decide what's being shown when
1: yeah the curators decide what's out there and the exhibits are kind of supposed to be more permanent so
2: the idea is that all right not to not to backpedal too much but
1: The people that started this museum were collectors and they ultimately in the 40s donated their collection to harvard university um the collection was owned by robert wood bliss who was a he was in the foreign service he was an ambassador to argentina he and his wife lived in south america all over the place for a while and they collected a lot of pre-columbian stuff it's, same time they're collecting byzantine stuff they kind of built their home into museum eventually donated it to harvard harvard took it over so it also became a kind of center for learning and scholars that study byzantine pre-columbian work come to the museum and we have a bunch of research areas and research libraries where they can come and like look at the collection look at the library and actually do research. So it's more of a place of learning as it's not more of, it's as much of a place of learning as it is a museum.
2: Word. Right. Is so, there any,
1: um, I'll go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say that, that we have like permanent display. Then there's a bunch of stuff in storage. We don't rotate a lot out of storage because the display is made to be permanent. We're kind of in the process of potentially starting to redo the Byzantine Gallery, but um, the cases are pretty substantial and it's pretty pretty important stuff. So it kind of just stays where it is.
0: Word makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any musical instruments in the museum?
1: You know, I think there might be some pre-Columbian stuff like. I don't know if anybody from work even knows I'm in a band and would even listen to this, but there might be some flutes or something like that. I'm I was going to guess I'm flutes. Of, I'm kind of picturing that. Yeah. Maybe. That kind of brings a bell. Right. I'll get back to you That's, about that. That's the interesting thing. <laughs> the interesting thing. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've become more fascinated with
0: like, I mean, (laughs) to musicians, the term world music is a big, icky no no. But uh, historic instruments and music of past civilizations, I should say, Mm -hmm. have become more fascinating to me because, you know, when we were growing up in the 90s and you had like the Discovery Store and malls and you had all this like world music popping off and Yanni was big and, you know, all this (laughs) stuff like, Being like a kid into punk rock and indie, I I stayed so far away from it. But, you know, as I get fascinated with humans and the human history, that stuff becomes so fascinating to me, which is why I keep bugging you about your job because I just get such a kick out of it. Like, you're like this DC skate rat, hardcore punk kid from the (laughs) 80s in the source of so much seminal and important not just punk, but just American music. And, you know, so I love how at the same time, your interests in your life so greatly embody Washington,
1: D.C. Well, you know, well, that makes me feel awesome about my life with it. You just said that I, I, I got to tell you, being in Washington, D.C. has really shaped my life in working in museums because the Smithsonian is here. I grew up, going to the Smithsonian every weekend with my dad. My dad literally took me every weekend to all the museums. Brilliant. Starting at like age five. They're free. If people don't know, if you don't live in DC. Yeah. The Smithsonian has, I don't know, a couple dozen different museums all around the area and they're all free. And if you live in another city where you have to pay to go to museum, you don't understand how convenient it is to have this at your fingertips. And when I was in kindergarten, my dad was going to grad school at Georgetown. And so he wasn't working during the day and he would, I had kindergarten in the afternoon, I guess that's how they used to do it for a while. I started Uh at like one, at least once a week, we would go to a museum in the morning and then come home and have lunch. And he would go off to do his graduate work. So we were doing that every week. So like I grew up being around these museums, the air and space, and the natural history museum were just like, yeah, I was just in love with them. And I didn't, I think that if I wasn't in Washington, DC, I wouldn't have understood the, I wouldn't have had the same connection because I just wouldn't have had access to it. You know, you gotta, I mean, it costs a lot of money to go to the Met in New York city. Are you kidding me? So I even went to college in DC for art. I was a painter in college and I still didn't know really that you could get a job in a museum that wasn't the artist who had the artwork in the museum. I didn't really know that existed. Yeah. And I kind of stumbled into the career, which a lot of people do and a lot of musicians do. But I think again, being in DC, gave me the opportunity to do that because there are so many different museums to just work at period. And so there's more of a need for people to do that here than maybe in another town. So were
0: you getting into punk rock while you were still like going to the museums all the time?
1: Yes. Yeah. I never stopped. I never stopped going to the museums. It was always just something that I did. If there was ever like a free weekend, I'd be at the museums and I think when I was in school, I guess it was my, um, I got out of high school and I just went to work as a bartender because I didn't want to go to college. I just hated high school so much. And I spent four years just working and not doing anything. And then I was like, well, I, I guess I should go to college because I, I thought I was going to be a graphic designer and I wanted to make more money because I didn't. I thought I needed to have, like, something permanent. But I had been doing, like, some freelance illustration at the time, and I didn't really know what I was doing with my life. So I applied to go to school, and I got into this school in D.C., and um, I got really heavily into actually being a painter, which I had always been, but never really took it seriously. So for those four years, I really kind of... Inhabited the museum world in Washington, D.C., when I was painting every single day and working around a bunch of other painters, and everybody's ex- inspired by everybody else. At the same time, I was playing music, but music never really th- seemed to me like something I would do. I always just assumed I was going to be an artist.
2: Did you see some epic shows uh, while you were in college? Yeah, I did. I did. We... Like, wait, rock shows or art shows?
0: Oh, I meant punk shows, just because that time period when you were in college would have been in the
1: 90s, right? Yes, yes. I, I saw... I got to see Fugazi at the 930 Club then. Damn. It was a benefit for something or other, and I remember somebody that I knew had an extra ticket that could get us in and i remember seeing them for the first time at a place with a sound system that sounded good and that's kind of like when my fugazi meter exploded because up until then up until then i'd only seen them at like a hall or outside or you know yeah i'd never heard them with good sound before then
0: who else played that show
1: no idea you only went to see fugazi <laughs> no idea i just yeah, i don't know probably a bunch of cool dc bands that i should be telling you about right now but um d i gotta <laughs> I, I i would say that they wouldn't have played 930 club for no reason there must have been some some kind of like like important benefit they were doing and yeah. you played 930 club sounds amazing in that place but are we it wasn't that 930 club in a different location no that moved way before that so Okay. It, used, it used to be at 930 F Street, way down but now, town, okay. by the mall, like close to the museums. Right. But it became where you're used to, I think. On V like, Street? Yeah, V Street, like the middle 90s, maybe. Late that's 90s.
0: A, that's a savory neighborhood. I mean, every time we've been at 930 Club, most of the times, there's some major sort of scene with ambulance and police and stuff well and
1: uh i gotta say it's a lot different now it's pretty crazy i don't know if you'd even recognize it there's a movie theater next door now well i could already see all that
0: happening because i think up the other street was the hospital and it was already kind of like you could see the gentrification moving in but yeah you could also see i think there was like uh maybe a west indian thing like a lot of like caribbean restaurants and And stuff like that. There's a big
1: there's a big Ethiopian presence over there. So there's. Oh, was uh, it also Ethiopian? Yeah, down. uh, Do you know a club called DC Nine that's down that way too, like around the corner?
0: No. Oh, but now that you now that you say that, I did have a good Ethiopian meal over there once. Because I love Ethiopia. That's
1: kind of like the niche where all a lot of those places popped up. So they've really those those restaurants have really been vital in in uh, keeping that area strong. And then Ben's Chili Bowls down the road from there too. So,
0: yeah, I remember walking down there with you guys one time when we played the Nine Thirty Club, yep. and nine. But it's like it's such Nine Thirty Club feeds you so well too, and they make you cupcakes. And oh my
1: god! I it's know. just
0: such a sick venue. The stage is great. The room is great. The sound is great. Like you can see, you can see from everywhere
1: in the venue. Yeah,
0: and like the way the the balcony is kind of tiered or terraced, I should say.
1: Like it's just. Yeah awesome it's just it's such great. an awesome venue yeah we played that show on the uh rx fairweather no motive tour we played that venue We we 9:30. Oh, yeah we did I, for, I forgot about that that's the only time fairweather ever played there because it's a pretty pretty big place so you know yeah we i guess we played black cat later on a bunch of times but we never played that place and that was a really fun show and they're so cool. When we played that show, all the people knew that we were lo- the, a local band, so they were super nice to us, man. It was awesome. The sound on that everybody stage
0: there is was so nice, always. Yeah,
1: amazing. Yeah,
2: I still have my nine thirty club track jacket.
1: I hope that at least, I hope they can hang in there. I don't know. We'll see what happens.
0: I feel like they were the size of venue, though. Like where a lot of bigger bands really needed them. Mm -hmm. for those that size concert which would be a lot of like pop artists too because they don't always jump to and maybe you know so and
1: maybe things will be different when the when the world kind of gets back to normal that maybe the bigger bands that normally would play the arena might start playing more club dates i don't know i would hope but i have the scary i have the scary feeling that like some corporation is going to just buy up all these places that can't pay their rent right now and Amazon or Spotify is going yeah. to be bringing you your show that you're going to. But see,
0: did you ever get to see Nation of Ulysses
1: live? I have seen them. Yeah, I think in the you're not into them. Ninety-five or something like that, maybe. Are you so, into them? So, as as a forty-three-year-old, I am. When I saw them, I wasn't the same. Same with Jawbox. I was, yeah. At the times I, the times I saw Jawbox when I was younger, I was like, yeah, they're, yeah, they're good. I just, they're not heavy. Like they're not as heavy as the bands I like.
0: Well, not as heavy as those bands, but dude, they're, they're pretty, they're heavy enough to
1: rock. For oh sure. my God. I know. By saying like, I, there's a lot of, you, you make a lot of dumb decisions when you're young about what is in your parameter of what's good and what's not. You you're know? right. I'm so guilty of that uh and that's when you think that heavy has to be a breakdown or a palm eating part and it's not a dynamic that creates a vibe of being i don't know Jawbox J- box is some of like the most amazing guitar parts i've ever heard in my life so
2: yeah it's true and they
0: were another band i mean Jay Robbins alone, but let's just start with Jawbox because they were like this DC band that eventually out wound up getting signed by a major label. Mm-hmm. And they had this really blown out, bright music video with that one like marbles on sheet of paper, like that penguin ice game in the video. Um, anyway, but they... I don't know if I told you this, but uh, last summer... I was playing with my friend's band, the Velvet Teen. They Uh asked me to play guitar with them Mm -hmm. because they were uh, they got the show opening for Jawbox at the Fillmore in SF. So it was us and Jawbox, and man, getting to watch them was so sick. They sounded so good. So
1: good. Did you see them on that tour last year? No, I never got to see them. But every I got so many texts of videos of them playing Savory. Oh man, just. In, in, yeah, I, I didn't get to see him on that tour, but
2: I'm, I'm glad
0: they came back and played and are getting love again and kind of re, I guess, reintroducing themselves so that they can take back Savory because there was such a long time where that version that Jonah from far and Chino did together. Yep. Like everybody thought that that was like a Deftones or a far song. And I'm like, no, yeah. that's a Jawbox song.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's really funny that you say that because that was the thing that everybody knew about and they were like, oh, I heard it's a Jawbox cover or something.
0: Yeah, this band Jawbox, I don't know who the fuck they are, you know?
1: Jay Robbins writes the coolest guitar lines and I may or may not have just been ripping them off for the past 20 years, so. Well,
0: if I said that Jawbox and Burning Airlines guitar parts didn't heavily influence my playing, and if i didn't admit that uh, i was totally ripping it off a lot of the times for rx too <laughs>
1: that you know i wouldn't be honest you know so. we have a fairweather has a joke you know you have your joke song titles and our one of our running joke song titles what used to be if you're stealing from us you're stealing twice which was just <laughs> because like <laughs> one one party one person came up to us at a show a million years ago and uh, they were a band that was like getting pretty big, and they were really big Fairweather fans. And the guy was like, really sweet. He's like, yeah, "Like we're big, we're really big fans, and you might even notice because we ripped off one of your songs, and we're gonna play it tonight." And I remember Ben being like, "Well, cool, because we ripped off the Afghan Wigs for that song, <laughs> so you're yeah. just basically like kicking the can down the road here."
0: Yeah, I can relate to that. That's awesome. I it makes me think that. If you're ripping me off, you're just ripping off so many other people, not just once. It's, yeah. It goes, it branches out like <laughs> But it's multiple also, directions.
1: It's also interesting how you can rip somebody off too, because there is a Fairweather song that I won't say what it is, but it's definitely, it was inspired by the cult Firewoman. And I was just so blown away by the intro to that song. The Fairweather version of it has doesn't sound anything like that, but like I remember hearing that when we were writing Lusitania and going we need a, we need a song that starts like this. we need to do something that has an epic start, and that was just enough for me to kind of like get the ball rolling in that way, you know yeah, of course we don't sound like and, a cult, you know, but
0: well, and for the listener, that's cool because if you even know or care about Jawbox and or J Robbins, uh, J Robbins produced that record that Peter's talking about for Fairweather. Yes. J Robbins and produced two records for us. I think, um, Lusitania is the one I'm more familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I think it definitely embodies his production sound too, to be honest. I'm like, it, I, hiss- I listen to it. And I'm like, not only does it sound really good, it sounds like a J Robbins record in the best way, yeah. you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, the first he did two. the Alaska was the first one. And then Lusitania was the second. And we did Alaska in four days. So it's almost like a blip as far as like the production of it.
0: How many songs
1: on Alaska? Four. So four we, songs in four days, four songs in four days, soup to nuts, everything, mixing and everything done in four days. And most of it's live.
0: That's cool, man.
1: Um, there's only a couple overdubs As far as the guitars went um, yeah. pro- Probably took longer Because I was We didn't have a bass player I played bass On a couple songs And Shane played bass on the other songs And I attempted to play bass Until I realized that I was like In over my head and that's, when <laughs> she, that's when Shane stepped in And like played it correctly <laughs> Um,
0: I have to ask this: Did you ever get to see Scream? No, no, I never did. Did you ever get to see Lungfish? No. That makes me feel better. I would have been kind of jealous and envious if you said yes. To oh, all good, these bands good. There.
1: I, I started going to shows in like '91, and <clears throat> I think I was like so fully immersed in hardcore at that time. That I remember seeing all these bands on bills but not going to them but they were contemporary to when I was going to shows but they right. just weren't like, you know, I was like super excited that like I don't know, Earth Crisis was coming through town or something like that, you know, so
2: okay, There's cool. also a lot of, so cool, you were-
1: lots of cool DC bands that were playing harder but like I, I definitely was like thought that hardcore had was the thing that i had discovered that anything besides that was not awesome
0: i can relate to that my thing was bay area punk yeah at that time which was its own microcosm you know so i dig it
1: i wouldn't when nirvana played on saturday night live in like 91 or 92 i remember thinking like well this band's okay but the bands that I listen to are really sick. Like this band is not heavy or this band is not as important as the bands that I listen to. Like, I don't know. It was, you know, cut to 15 years later and I'm like, holy shit, those songs on nevermind are genius. And I didn't even know that because I was snobby for no reason when I didn't realize that that band had come from the world that I was, sticking my toe into you know what I mean
0: so as I get older and older I'm finding more and more of my friends that were nirvana haters I and was a
1: nirvana hater I was a hater. Yeah, and I was a hater dude
0: my other nirvana hater friends that are listening to this and you know who you are some <laughs> of you are very very close friends of mine so I see you guys mm-hmm. and I'm coming to find out that uh Maybe it was my particular position in suburbia of Northern California and my heavy ingestion of Bobby Brown, Paula Abdul, kind of getting into a little bit of Guns N' Roses and Lenny Kravitz that allowed me to be so impacted by Nirvana. Whereas I feel like people who had access to uh, more punk and indie stuff sooner, had that thing where they're like eh, nirvana you know so Mm -hmm. i get it before that i all i could do was raid my sister's cds and she listened to tons of goth and goth industrial so she was into like dead can dance front 242 clan of zymox you know what i mean like
1: that's a good point i never i never really thought about that because like maybe my exposure to other stuff before i heard nirvana made me be able to hate on Nirvana because
2: I, sure. already, I
1: already it. thought I discovered something that nobody knew about. And other yeah. people other people were still listening to popular music and Nirvana, because it became popular music, was the first thing that they discovered.
2: Okay, so who was your Nirvana at that time? Who, what, what do you mean? Who was my who favorite?
0: Who was the band that made you feel like you made a huge discovery that changed your outlook on what you could associate yourself with and stuff like, cause that's what Nirvana was for so many people, for so many suburban kids like me. I
1: think, I think I would say that Lifetime was that band. Okay. I think Lifetime came out with melody and quote singing unquote. And yeah. they still had heavy mosh parts, but they had melody and emotion in a way that a lot of the hardcore I was listening to didn't have it was vul- a little vulnerable and I think it yeah. kind of like it kind of leveled the playing field as far as the emotions I was having as a ninth grader right not understanding about life and not getting it and these songs that were like filled with angst about that sort of stuff, but also there was melody and I think that I'm just drawn to melody, and I didn't, I you know, I didn't know that.
0: But, dude, I mean, okay, I, I back lifetime, I respect him, um, but that's like some of the softer, more melodic music from that genre, and he definitely, certainly sounds softer than Kurt Cobain, that's for sure.
1: Right, but there was, there was still fast parts and mosh parts. Yeah, you're right. Right. So I was also really into Inside Out at that time too, which is like the other end of that spectrum, which was yeah. pure exploding rage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And also I was so, really I was really into a band from DC called Worlds Collide that was very metal. They were a hardcore band, but they were a lot of like downpicking metal stuff.
0: Did you get into shelter at any point?
1: Oh yeah. Huge shelter fan.
0: I kind of asked that. I, I gotta confess, I kind of asked that sort of uh, disingenuously because I I knew that of course you would.
1: <laughs> well, I <laughs> He's so into the, shelter. The first show that I've played, the first show was at a place called Asylum that was near. Uh, at that time, it was near the Nine Thirty Club at where now was DC Nine in the same block. I was in a band with a couple other guys and. We had like four songs or three songs or something like that. And we played a matinee and Shelter was the headliner. I was in 10th grade and that was the first show I played. There was nobody there when we played, like literally nobody. And then Shelter was like nine hours late and we all waited around for Shelter and Shelter played. But I was a huge Youth of Today fan before that. So when Shelter came out, I was already on board with that. But by the time,
0: I was going to ask you this, by the time you were getting into... Not just punk, but less, less like hardcore in particular, mm-hmm. or the beginnings of hardcore, what they mm-hmm. were then, mm-hmm. before the kind of weird clicky bass drum collegiate hoodie yeah. thing took over, which is weird, but um youth of today had already broken up by the time you were getting into it, right
1: yeah, yeah, they yeah. had broken up i I read I knew about them, and I read about them in Thrasher, so I knew they existed, and I think I got. I think I was listening to their last full length and their, their seven inch disengaged seven inch uh-huh. when they might've been around, but I wasn't really going to shows anyway. Cause my parents weren't letting me go to shows at that age. I'm in seventh or eighth grade, eighth grade. Um, so that's why my buddy that I was actually skateboarding with was like, you know, Ray of today has this new band called shelter. And he gave me the seven inch and That's how I discovered Shelter, like right when they came out, because of Youth of Today. But I'd never seen Youth of Today. I was like before my time.
0: You were skating already, right?
2: Yeah. When you were getting into Shelter? I started
1: skating when I was eight years old.
2: What was your first board? I had a
1: Nash Executioner. I wanted that board. I had a Volterra. But I wanted the Nash. Um, so I had a Nash executioner and then somebody told me that it like wasn't cool to have a Nash executioner and I needed to get a <laughs> I, need, I needed to get a Powell, right? So my mom was like we're not going to buy any skateboard. We just bought you this one. And I was like, "But I just oh, I really want this one. I, I want the wrap Bones. I wanted the wrap Bones really bad." My mom was like, yeah. "Well, what does it look like?" And so I showed her a picture of it from the magazine or whatever. She goes, "Well, we can just paint that." So my mom took my skateboard, took all the trucks and wheels off it. We painted it. She painted the rat bones on the bottom of the executioner. Sick. And instead of saying Palperolta, it said Peter Tessuras on the bottom. You my do mom, have
0: a good pro skater name, actually, now that you mentioned it.
1: <laughs> my mom was, my mom loved skateboarding. She like felt like it was such a great thing for me and my friends to do. A lot That's of cool. moms, a lot of moms in that time, this is 85. They would have hated it, Right. But she thought it yeah. was this super positive thing that we did. And she super supported us, would take us to demos, take us to skate competitions and stuff. That's great. Did you do any castle contests? Did I do what? Oh, I guess that would be a California thing. Never mind. I was in a contest when I was... I got fourth place in a contest. I was robbed. And when I was in like uh, sixth or seventh grade. Was it a street contest? They had like a setup with like before handrails got to be real big they had like a handrail and a platform and a quarter pipe on the side of the handrail you know yeah. what i'm talking about yeah i did one of those things like where you run up to the handrail and put your board on 50 50 and jump on top of it so you caveman to 50 50 yeah i did it and i got third place and i think it was because they tell me that the judges knew the I got fourth place, but they said it was because the judges knew the third place guy. So I was robbed.
0: Did you used to listen to Shelter while you were skating? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I think when I was in that contest, I was listening to The Exploited and GBH a lot more. And so the year later. Oh, nice. Yeah, the, a year later, I was fully Gorilla Biscuits, Shelter, and uh, Youth of Today and Sick of It All were like my favorite bands. Come eighth grade by the time i got eighth grade i was fully immersed and also like yeah. skate, skateboarding like the older kids that i skated with all what that's why i started going to shows because this kids the kids i skated with i was younger and they were like four or five years older and yeah. they drove me to shows yeah like
0: so many people i learned about so many bands through thrasher mm-hmm. and first time i read about shelter was in thrasher and yeah, first time I read about Lifetime was in Thrasher, but then at that time, uh, it was a little bit later, they had just put out Jersey's Best Dancers and oh, wow. MRR, Maximum Rock and Roll and Punk Planet and all these like uh, publications mm-hmm. back in our day when uh, used to actually have print <laughs> at the yeah. record stores. Yeah. They were all like really giving props to Jersey's Best Dancers and uh Yeah, I got it on vinyl. I remember taking it home. Shout out Last Record Store in Santa Rosa, California, where I got all the good shit. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was like, our town was like a little over 100,000 people, but this record store, even to this day, as a 40-year-old musician who's been playing and listening to music my whole life, Mm -hmm. I have a new appreciation for this record store. The Last Record Store in Santa Rosa, they had every release, everything. They had it for... They had, you know, everything from Crosby, Crosby, Stills and Nash to all the old like white guy Santa Rosa stuff. But you know, when the Neutral Milk Hotel record came out in '96, I got it. When Built to Spill Perfect from Now On came out, I got it. You know what I mean? Like when when Lifetime's record came out, I got it. Like
1: everything. So how did they get all that stuff? Were there people that worked there that just knew what to buy and they just were buying the right stuff? Yeah, it was run by these older guys
0: huh. and they were so knowledgeable about music. That's and amazing. I had a couple other buddies that ended up working there and they are also so knowledgeable about music. I mean, just the the breadth of knowledge of bands and genres is impressive, you know? And yeah. I really yeah. appreciate it now.
1: Like uh we and put- it still exists, so we had a place called Smash in d c that was in a neighborhood called Georgetown did you ever go there when Oh yeah that in D.C.? that
0: little uh oh yeah that little neighborhood Georgetown in d c yeah
1: <laughs> well they had they had a record store and I would go there after school like at least once a week and just kind of like look around and through seven inches and ask the guy at the counter and I like he I remember being like, Is the new strife record coming? in or something like that, you know? <laughs> and he would say, Well, have you heard about this one? And he would just talk to me about the same kind of stuff, like, point me up, point me in the right direction. I think I was looking for some other revelation thing, and he pointed me to Far Side. Yeah. At that time. And, you know, like that's one of those bands is like different from what you are used to hearing from a revelation.
0: And just to be clear, this is F A R Farside, Side, which yes. is
1: not the hip hop group The yeah. Far Side from Open, yeah.
0: which is P H. But
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, so those those institutions are hard to find now.
0: Yeah, they are. Um, Far Side was another band that
1: Thrasher jocked super hard at that time. Yeah, dude. I so it's Isn't funny that you say that about why Thrasher. They, why were
0: they in Thrasher so much?
1: Maybe they knew somebody. I don't know. I learned about. I went. They had this mall, Beacon Mall, near my house, and they had a Waxy Maxis store. I don't know if you guys know what Waxy, it, was. It a chain of. Must have been an East chain, Coast chain. East Coast chain. Must have been East Coast chain. Waxy Maxis. I remember going up, going. Do you guys have a underdog? And they're like, like huh. <laughs> and I like, and I was like, okay, I'll just go look, and I just I found it—the tape they had the underdog tape because I read about it in Thrasher. That's rad. I got the Killing Time tape at Waxy Maxie's too. Yeah. Damn.
2: Um. So this segues nicely into my
0: mind. Let's see mm-hmm. if it uh, works out in in practice here. But when I listen to one of your newer bands, Be Well. hmm Be Well HC.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: while it's not totally homage or something, it definitely evokes a lot of those vibes from that era. hmm And that sort of... I hate the term, but just to familiarize people, uh,
2: and for lack of a better term, that whole... Youth crew energy Yeah. Do you
0: view it the same way or are you like, "Choi, you're coming out of like left field with this shit."
1: I don't know. No, I feel like it's a youth crew record for grown-ups and people who have that feeling that's never going to go away. <laughs> okay, I didn't make a fool of myself. Not not at all. Not and that's why I love playing with this, that band because
2: uh, it's like,
1: you know, a lot of that music is about being young, right? And the lyrics that everybody grew up with were about when they were young and about think, not understanding how things are, not and being pissed off at the world. But you still, relate to the kind of music and the almost like the sonic importance of how the songs are put together in that genre that you always relate to. So lyrically though, it's a grown-up record. It's about different stuff. It's about being a dad, it's about being pissed off at the world or upset at the world or not being comfortable with yourself, but in more of a in less of a like hard-headed way and more of a introspective way and so that songs really like to me I listen to the songs and I'm like if I could create a hardcore band this would be the band that I would do right now because I'm not mad at I'm not pissed off I don't want to like uh, I don't have the anger that I used to have maybe and I, I, I I don't know if it's even anger is the right word for it when you're young but you're just frustrated all the time so those feelings are still there but they're a lot more focused in this band and I think that's why people seem to be relating to this band a lot more and like also we're in this fucking insane pandemic right now everybody's life is insane everybody's having a hard time and these things
2: are kind of universal and
1: you don't need to already understand the genre to kind of relate to it. So then you add, you add the youth crew version, you add the youth crew element to some of those songs and then you get be well, right? Yeah. And I hear a lot of that element
0: in Brian's vocals. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's trippy because it's very, very, very rare. I can't even think of another example where uh, you know an accomplished producer, like you get to hear them in that sort of creative, artistic way, so it's really cool.
1: It is. He, he I was a big Battery fan, right? So I think B- Battery's a really cool band. The yeah, band, he used really to, cool. He used to sing in a band called Battery. For people who don't know, um, and but everybody was really young when they did that band and this. Songs are about stuff when you're young. But you don't start being okay with everything just because you're a grown-up. But you still love hardcore. And the thing that makes everybody feel connected is this vibe of this music that can be, it like transcends age and time and. It, it sounds really cheesy saying this, but like that's why I really connected to this thing right now in my life. Like, I need this outlet. I need to be playing this kind of hardcore right now. I grew up listening to this kind of hardcore. Fairweather, yeah. Fairweather is a whole other beast, right? And uh, to be able to do this with a bunch of guys who are all just amazing musicians and amazing dudes is just like super lucky right now.
0: Yeah, it brings up that energy in me. I want to strap on a guitar and jump in the air as high as I can with my left foot totally straight, my front <laughs> foot, the, the foot sticking out, and then my right leg bent with my heel tucked right under my right butt cheek.
1: I'll never be able to do it. my head down. I can't do the hardcore jump, man. I can't do it.
0: I mean, but that's only one iteration, a classic one, you know? It's classic.
1: It's, it's classic. It's I classic it.
0: and... Even when I see people doing it now, if they do it well, I'm like, hey, it's cool. You know, I, like, still get a kick out of it.
1: I plant my feet and I, I dig in. That's kind of like what I do.
0: Yeah. I remember yeah. that. I, I remember your stage Stees as well. I remember, honestly, I remember 2003 Fairweather very vividly. Yeah. You know, yeah. I remember even like, Merkin's still feeling and looking awkward on stage, but being such a solid, great bass player. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I remember uh, Ben Green's frenetic hair whipping kind of back and forth upstage, downstage, you know, with the Thunderbird. And I remember you fully planted in with your hardcore cap pulled low (laughs) And if I remember correctly, you're a, you're a heel jammer. So you like Mm -hmm. to have that toe planted and just bam, bam with the heel. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good way to feel the beat. All joking aside, like that's an awesome way to rock and keep yourself like locked in the pocket of the groove. Uh, I, I don't know if I do it like outwardly, but I definitely like got my heel going on stage. Like most of the time.
1: Oh man. How many times have you hurt your heel from jamming real hard? I'm happens. lucky.
0: I it's
1: happened, but
0: I've done the ball of my foot more than I've done my heel with the way I move on
1: stage. Oh, okay, which is okay.
0: yeah, um, just because I'm tied to a pedal board and keyboard and mic and stuff, oh, right. so I'm always having to go back. And, you have
1: a lot of responsibilities.
2: No, it's true. It's true.
1: It's true. And that's the thing that's different now. I, there's two things that I want to say about this. It's different now because in Fairweather, like what we're doing now, there's so much stuff that I have to do with like effects and all that crap that like I have to think about a lot. Back then in Fairweather, I had like maybe a tremolo that I would hit once in a while, but I would just go for it the whole time. And now I think that there'd be, there's so much more to think about for all the different, if we were to do a show, trying to like incorporate the catalog. But then the other thing is that just doing a show seems so amazing to me right now because nobody can play shows. Totally. And the thought of doing it and you're talking about be well and just, we've had this be well record out for a while and people are really responding to it. And we're all just dying to get out there and be with people that want to be at a show, you know? Totally. And just, and just like, I would have never imagined that we'd I'd be in a spot where this is the longest. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's the longest I've ever gone without playing a show, but it's the longest I've ever gone with being this upset about not playing a show.
0: That's exactly it. You, you nailed it, which is I've gone longer without playing a show, uh-huh. but I was spoiled and entitled. And I was like, well, I could do it whenever like an asshole. Right. And then, you know, I, as I've talked about numerous times and I've dedicated a whole episode of this goddamn podcast to now that it's taken away, uh-huh. I so clearly see what a magical thing it was. And <sighs> I mean, what a magical thing, even 100 people smushed together, engaging in this performance with you. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like it on earth. And, I'm not expressing anything new that somebody hasn't identified everybody who spent so much money and so much of their time to see bands and shows. is like, yeah, duh. What the fuck do you think we're into? You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but I'm making that, uh, realization as, uh, recovered, not just hater, but cynic and somebody who was so aloof to that, who was just like, well, I've worked so hard in music and we've grinded. So at least we could have this, you know, when mm-hmm. it's like, I was looking at it totally in the wrong way. And if you've, nothing else, this time is great for me adjusting my perspective on that.
1: And you've been doing it for so long too. So it, it's really hard to not become cynical about cynical about anything you do, right? So yeah. it, it's understandable, but you know, you think back, like you're talking about, you did this thing where you talked about how you wish you would maybe not taken for granted different nights that you played. Right. So yeah, everybody has that in their life one way or another about something they're doing, but not until now has there ever been a time where life has changed so much for everybody. And there's like, there's no there's no map for this right now. And clearly, we can't take for granted the fact that we can go and play music for people and people want to come out and see it, right? Yeah. Right? But at the same time, like, I need to play music to feel good. That's what I need to do. Yeah. And I need to go play it loud on stage with my friends. And if nobody comes, that's fine. Yeah. but But people people want to go see music too. I don't. We're, totally. we're, in, a, we're in a crazy time right now.
0: <laughs> and you said something that I've totally identified for myself, which, which was I used to think that the main only essence for me and enjoyment was writing and recording music, creating the music, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is still for me one of the main things. But mm-hmm. what I've realized also is that playing music, meaning with other people, Meaning you get the satisfaction of hearing an idea and music all come to life at once when you're playing mm-hmm. with other people is really special, even if it's there's no one there like so after so many years getting to play with Matt and Seajak again together, like you know a year and a half ago, it's the first time we got into a room together for four you know four or five years and just practicing for our sound of animals fighting tour was so enjoyable. Even the Mm -hmm. shows were fun. The time leading up to those shows and jamming was even more fun. Just like RX, we got to do one RX show last January in 2020 and just all the practice and jamming leading up to that one show. For me, it was more about the practicing leading up because we just kept to, we kept like getting to play together and it was so fun to just be like play with like, and to get to play with other good musicians that you just know and like, you just yeah have played with for so long, like when you do with Fairweather, or like when I do with Matt and Seagac, it's like
1: yeah, oh my god, and that's sick. why when I got I get to be in two bands with Shane who yeah plays drums and Fairweather and plays drums and be well, I just I'm I'm a lucky man. Yeah, we're we're all lucky that we have
0: not only the means, but the knowledge and the passion to get to do something like music. Um, You know, it's kind of sounds like a doy when everybody's like, everybody should have a creative outlet. And it's like, yeah, in theory, everybody should. But in practice, it's so hard for so many people to have a creative outlet, Mm -hmm. you know, for various Mm -hmm. reasons. And so I feel so lucky because music is still such a high, high, high art form, you know? In all of its genres.
1: So. And if, if you think about that, like, everybody should have a creative outlet. If anything, this pandemic has shown a lot of people that they didn't have something else going on in their life that could make them happy. Right? Yeah. So, everybody's forced to change their lives. And, you know, granted, I'm in a place in my life where I'm happy to stay home all the time. So it's it's not really emotionally affecting me so much. I'm lucky to be employed right now. And I know that it's super tough for other people. But a lot of people are like, well, my hobby is going out.
0: Yeah, I've had this exact same conversation. Totally. That's a lot of people's hobby. Their thing is, and I'm not talking shit, like their thing is going to Buffalo Wild Wings on Thursday night or...
1: Yeah, whatever get, it is, BJ's get the, pizza, or, get the Asian zing w- wings at Buffalo wild wings.
0: Yeah. And, um, I get it sometimes if you know, we're, that's what I mean by we're lucky. You got mm-hmm. family to feed, you got bills to pay. Uh, you don't have the time or the money or to do something like play music. And you just want to go chill at Applebee's on Thursday night and just <laughs> get what you like and, you know, enjoy yourself. Like, I I appreciate people appreciating their time on earth now, as long as it doesn't
1: involve like hating or harming other people. Like I'm all for it. Yeah. And I think that maybe right now people are forced to look introspectively about what they really want and what makes them happy. You know, if they have the luxury to do that, if they're not just like struggling to, you know, keep, keep food on the table, which I know is a lot of the country is dealing with, but nobody when everything's everything's just going the way that it always does you don't think about that you have anything missing so a lot of people realize they don't have anything to do for me i have a million things to do i have a million projects i would always work on i'm never bored i'm not a bored person because i'm an artist i'm a musician i could just do a million things but other people are like, fuck, I don't want to sit in my house anymore. Totally. And that's you the mentality that Read, drives them. You're right. Yeah. Read a book. Read, like, do, There's so many things to do. And maybe people are finding that out now. So maybe that's the fucked up silver lining that people have decided. Maybe, I don't know. I
0: mean, I just don't have faith in the masses. I think the lowest common denominator has always been. And it's part of human nature. That's my humble opinion and that's what has allowed these tyrannical rulers over time to happen over and over through multiple iterations through multiple cultures Mm. it now honestly like all joking aside like this aggressive consumer capitalism america is the current overlord the real overlord of everybody and the way that ties into what you're saying is that you know a lot of these people are and to tell them to read a book Or to find knitting or to do something besides just baked bread or whatever it is like is to ask them to be a different person with different experiences that develop their mind differently. And so I understand if you're already an adult, you're 45, you're 40, whatever it is, like you don't have something, I get how bad you want to go out and go to that bar or restaurant. Or even if you are a musician and you have something, I get how bad you want to go out and play a show and stuff. But to all those people, there's one unifying concept to me, which is if you're still prioritizing your desire to go do those things or to go play a show or whatever over the safety of all of us humans on earth, then you're an asshole. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, You're the type of person that most likely thinks If I don't take it, somebody else will. And it's that mentality that you're just like, well, you know, and the way they look at it as not giving up a a large gathering for Thanksgiving or not, or doing it for some, I don't know, stupid reason that infringes on their enjoyment as opposed to it being for something like logical and pragmatic that's going to help all of humanity. It's that same mentality. And, I do judge those people to be honest. It's hard for me to keep an open mind with those people. I think they're dickheads.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I I feel like you have to almost take everybody on a case by case basis about where they're getting their information mm-hmm. from and then it's true. Then mm-hmm. think about you can you, you can't get through to somebody who's spent the last 10 years hearing things that aren't true how are you gonna how are you gonna what are you gonna do about
2: that it's like it you can't
1: convince somebody that things that they've heard for the past decade are not true and that's what we're that's what we're dealing with right now that's where we are i also think that there's
0: a huge amount in addition to what you're saying um of it hasn't affected me personally so i don't realize it on this level, you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: well, that's that's a huge thing. Like people in suburbia, people in middle America, people that aren't in big cities that have not seen trucks, freezer trucks, that have bodies in them. They're like, okay, well, we don't have to do this. We are in Georgia and we're dealing with it just fine. We're going to the gym and we're going out to eat and nobody's, it's not a big deal. But that's just because it hasn't gotten there yet. It hasn't affected them yet. But that's cl- the classic, that's the mentality of that political ideology anyway. If it doesn't affect you, then it's not an issue. And that's the, yeah. where the that's where the divide happens. Is like, there are people who say, well, it's not affecting me, but this is a problem. We need to do something about it. And then there are people saying, well, this is not affecting me, so it's your problem. Yeah. Right. And... uh if
0: sociopathy sociopathy is generally defined by lack of compassion or empathy towards those that aren't you, then, uh, you know, that's sociopathic ideology.
1: <laughs> just get us out of this. I, I just want to play. I just want to play shows. I want to go to California and hang out with you and Roger and go eat Korean yeah. barbecue is what I want to do.
0: <laughs> I want I want you to come and do that and I want to go out to DC and I want to hang out with you and I want to do some old guy skating and check out your
1: museum. Oh my God. Yeah. It'd be so, maybe we'll be there soon. Maybe. Uh, When was the last time you skated? Oh my God. I straight, I tried to skate flat ground um, two weeks ago and my knees have been, I felt like they were (laughs) uh, (laughs) swollen ever since then. I've, I've, I've torn meniscus in both my knees that I need to have surgery for.
0: Okay. That's not, you're not in skating shape then you're maybe in like curb skating
2: shape. I'm in, I'm I'm in,
1: I'm in transition skating shape as long as I don't jump. Yeah. Right. I, uh, I had surgery. I had my shoulder put back together like four years ago, but that was because I tore my labrum in my shoulder over the years of just lifting and moving stuff. And uh, I have five sutures that are permanently holding my shoulder together. And I will even sleep strangely on that shoulder and it'll hurt for days. And so if I were to take a shoulder and fall down, it wouldn't be good. But now my knees hurt. So that's, that's the big thing. How do you
0: sleep then just on your
1: other side or are you a back sleeper? Well, that's the problem. I started sleeping on my good side, which started fucking my back up because my shoulder blades will pinch together if I sleep on one side too much. So then I try to sleep on my back. So now I'm like trying to get the right, uh, tempur pillow situation to be able to sleep on my back so I don't have to lean on either side. <laughs> it's bad, you know why? It's bad, You know why dude. I'm
0: so tickled right now is because this is the most... Prime, deep, old guy conversation (laughs) that we've had yet. Mm -hmm. And um, with respect to all the healthy, vibrant people much older than us, I know that we're not actually really old. We're old, you know, in relation to our youth, which we reference often. But, you know, I'm into it. I'm into being 40. I've been enjoying it. And you live your age so well. And, um, I hope that by the time I'm your age
1: in three years,
0: (laughs) you're four years older than me, aren't you?
1: I'm 43. How old are you? 40.
0: Okay. I just turned 40. So, yeah. Yeah. So by the time I, you know, make it through the journey to the long journey to 43 and I finally get to where you are in life. (laughs) I'm just kidding.
1: Uh, well, look, you'll learn a lot by the time you're my age. You know, those three years, it's going to be crazy.
0: This funny thing when you stop being a self-absorbed idiot is that you're able to learn a lot. And the cruel cosmic joke is that my mind finally opened up to learning more and more as my mind started to get less and less sharp. Mm. So, uh, you know, it's a battle and I'm with it.
1: And also... You know, you know what your body can do though at this age, right? You've been doing it this long.
0: I'm still trying to push it, to be honest,
1: my body a little bit. My dream is to build a two and a half foot mini ramp. That sounds so fun. That's what I would just, I would just skate it every day. It's very mellow. You don't have to like commit to a lot. Yeah, You're not falling too far. I learned how to skate a lot on a on a little mini ramp. You could learn every lip trick there was, and they don't exist a lot. But if I were to ever get a house with a backyard, that's that would be the thing, and I could just go out there every morning. Yeah. Skate it. And I've often
0: said the same thing, man. So I hope someday uh, we get to skate each other's mini ramps because <laughs> that would be killer, wouldn't God, it?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, it's wow. so much. So much of skating in DC is ledges and, and jumping. And it's just tough. It's tough on me. So
0: I look forward to the day we get to skate together, buddy. Thanks again for taking the time to be here and talk to me.
1: I had such a good time. Thank you so much for having me. And sorry to make you stay at the studio so late. Oh, I love the studio. It's amazing. Oh, awesome. I'm going to have another high life and then, uh, call it a day. Excellent. Are you going to go home and just go straight to sleep? Um, I think I'm gonna rewatch The Mandalorian, like the from the beginning. No, from last night. So, have you seen last night episode? Yes, it's amazing. So, I watched it, but I had my son yelling at me the whole time. So, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna watch it in peace, in the dark. And uh, you're not gonna
0: fall asleep, will you? Stay awake for it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Yeah. Well enjoy your mandalorian rewatch okay you're a lovely human being i like you very much peter thank you thanks Choi. i'll talk to you soon buddy bye-bye all right